Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 201. Today's big Bible question, must we hear from God on every decision? So, hello, friends. Happy uh, Thursday, right? I've kind of lost track of my days because today I had four Zoom meetings, and uh, I also had to do our taxes. Uh, The old melon is fried, I think. Well, I hope your brain is functioning a little bit better than mine. Today's Bible passages are Joshua 23, Acts chapter 3, Jeremiah 12, and Matthew 26. None of those chapters are a focus passage for today because, uh, you know, I sort of make up the rules as we go along and because we're going to be talking about how to make wise decisions one more time today. So this will be the third of a three-part series where beginning with Acts chapter 1, looking at how the disciples cast lots to determine who would be the new disciple to take over for Judas Iscariot, and that got us talking about how we make decisions from a biblical perspective. Now, I'm sure we could probably, in one of our chapters we're reading today, find at least some passages that that would be tangentially related to making wise decisions, but you know what? I don't want to strain the text. So, We'll talk about making wisdom decisions today, and then we'll read all our Bible passages together at the same time, and then tomorrow we'll be off on a new tangent. Speaking of wise decisions, I made a dumb one today. I put off my taxes until the last minute, literally, you know, we got an extension this year until July the 15th, and then at like 10 o'clock or so when I was going to start working on them, or 9 o'clock, I think, yeah, it was more like 9 o'clock, I couldn't find my primary W-2 for the life of me. It wasn't in my tax file. I looked everywhere, all over the house, all over my office, all over my office at the church, everywhere. Well, it turns out it was right where I thought it was, in the tax file, in my paperwork box. It was kind of nestled up into another piece of unrelated paper, uh, but it took me three times to find it. And that little snafu means that I was actually a couple of hours late filing my taxes this year, maybe for the first time ever. Now, if if that gets the podcast shut down, well, you'll know the IRS has come and arrested me. And I suppose I probably deserve it, because waiting until the last minute to do something is not wise, but it's foolish. I didn't allow for any margin for uh, losing my W-2 or whatever. Now, let me give you a couple of other examples of foolish decisions. One I did in, I think it was 1991. I regret almost every day to this day. Me and a friend of mine, shout out to Bradford, went on a caving adventure. In my college days, I was very much the spelunker, and uh, we skipped class to do it. And in the middle of that caving adventure, we, uh, this was not a, uh, this was a vertical cave, not a horizontal cave. So you had to climb down into it with ropes and things like that. Well, it was a great time. We climbed down. We found these massive rooms on the inside of the cave, maybe unexplored by other people. It was just incredible. Uh, and there was a river running through the bottom of it. Well, I guess river is kind of a strong word. Maybe stream running through the bottom of it. And it had those interesting cave fish in it. And, uh, I remember getting soaking wet in that situation, just kind of checking out the stream and trying to push as far as we could into the cave. Well, then it got to be time to go home. So we were climbing out, uh, with the ropes we had set up to climb back in. And, uh, as I was pulling up on a rock, the rocks underneath me kind of, uh, had a little mini cave in situation. And 
all of my weight went on my right shoulder and I dislocated it and plunged down, oh, about four or five feet. Nothing dramatic. Plunge is probably not the right word. And uh, my shoulder was dislocated. It eventually went back in the socket, but trying to climb out, it dislocated five or six more times and we were trapped. And uh, to this day, my shoulder hurts every day. I've had two surgeries on it and uh, it, it, doesn't hurt all the time, but it uh, it's pretty close. It's like uh, a horrible shoulder. And I made a foolish decision. What was the foolish decision? Well, I skipped class. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I did something that I thought was fun, and we took some risks. Maybe we shouldn't have taken. Now, you know, kids do stupid things, but uh, that was foolish. Let me give you a, a more history-shaking foolish decision. Are you familiar with the Battle of Agincourt? In 14... 14- 15, the British and the French were in the middle of the Hundred Years' War, which is a terrible misnomer because it was really, I think, the uh, 116 Years' War. So it lasted longer than 100 years. It wasn't an exaggeration. It was an under-exaggeration. Well, they were in the middle of this war, and the English army, which was outnumbered by the French army, uh, the English army under the command of Henry V, was marching across northern France, heading back to England, hoping, hopefully to resupply and rest and that sort of thing. But they were cut off by a big force of heavily armored Frenchmen under Charles, uh, Charles d'Albray. Now, d'Albray had a great fighting force of men. They had plate armor, all this kind of stuff. They, they were fearsome. And the British were short of food. They were suffering. They, uh, they were just not in great shape as an army. But King Henry advanced on them anyway. Maybe it was a show of bravado. Maybe I don't know what he was thinking. But when he did that, Dalbray took it as a, an insult, as a challenge. And instead of uh, doing the wise thing, which would have been to cut off the English army's ability to get to England and then just wear them down by superior numbers and armor, he decided to attack. Now, the problem was that there was a vast field of horrible mud between the British and the French. And Dalbray's men were in this super heavy plate armor. And they being mad that the British didn't cower down to them and that they flew with their colors and everything, the French soldiers advanced with a charge across this muddy ground. And plate armor and mud doesn't really go well together. So the British just kind of were like, oh, well, we'll let them go through the swamp there and, and get all worn out. And that's exactly what happened. By the time the French army, even though they were vastly outnumbered, the English army, By the time they got to the Englishmen, they were tired. They were absolutely done. Uh, They had to go through mud that was in some cases up to their knees. Some of them even drowned, apparently, in the midst of that. And the ultimate uh, toll of the Battle of Agincourt is that several thousand Frenchmen died, including Dalbray, and uh, only like a hundred of the British people died. Well, this is a colossally foolish decision that Dalbray made. Um, he could have easily won that battle if he had just been patient and wise, but he didn't do it, and that sort of changed the course of history there for a while. Now, foolish decisions 
can have long-term consequences that are hard to overcome. I myself find that thinking about foolish decisions and the consequences of foolish decisions actually help spur me in the direction of making wise decisions. Maybe it doesn't do that for you, but it makes me want to be more wise. So I've heard many times in thinking about decision-making and making wise decisions I've heard dozens of times from church members on pretty much any decision we need to make as individuals and as the church at whole, people will say things like, we need to hear from God on that. Now, I completely agree with that. On issues that the Bible commands us, we must hear from God. That means we know the word and we obey the word. And when we've read the word, we've heard from God. Now, most of our decisions, the problem with them is... Uh, decisions like, I don't know, for instance, how much we should give, where we should live, whether we should buy or rent a house, what job to have, what person to marry, what amount of schooling to get, where to go to school to begin with, what hobbies to have, whether to move to California or stay in Alabama, etc., etc., etc. Those decisions are not addressed by commands in the Bible, but they are very, very important decisions, even life-altering decisions. So what must we do? Do we pray until God says, California? And we're like, oh, well, let's go to California or something else. Now, I contend, and we've talked about it the last couple of days, that the pattern of decision-making we see in the Bible shows that when faced by decisions that aren't clearly addressed in the Bible, we, as believers, have the liberty and the calling to make wise decisions informed by the Word of God framed by prayer, open to the direct supernatural guidance of God's Spirit, and enhanced with the counsel of others. We are not commanded to hear from God on those decisions, though we should certainly be open to it. We have not failed or, quote, missed God if we make decisions that we don't, quote, hear from God on. Now, parents, if we tell our kids they must, quote, hear from God, on what to do when they grow up, or who to marry, or who to date, or whatever, we're kind of adding to Scripture. And we're placing a burden on them that is not in the Bible. And beyond that, we might just be stunting their ability to actually make wise decisions, failing to teach them about the sovereign guidance of the Lord, and instead teaching them to rely on their own feelings, which is so often What happens when we say, I've heard from God? We've kind of heard from ourselves. Not every time, but it happens a lot. Most of the time when today somebody claims to, quote, hear from God, they don't actually mean that God audibly spoke to them or that they had a supernatural encounter of some sort, but they usually mean they have a sense or feeling from God about which direction to go. So let's go back to the Word of God and see how the saints of God were led in Scripture. Sometimes, as we discussed yesterday and the day before, God's guidance is supernatural and obvious. For instance, Acts 18, verse 7, Paul went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in the city. And Paul stayed there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. Now, 
Let me be very clear. I'm a Baptist, but I absolutely believe that the New Testament allows and leaves room for people to be led by God in supernatural ways, including prophetic words, dreams, supernatural messages, direct messages from God like Paul got here, even messages from angels. All of those things I see in Scripture. So I want to be scriptural, and so I have to be uh, cognizant that all of those ways are ways that God has led people in the Bible, and I think it still happens that way today. Now, that said, based on Scripture, I believe that sort of guidance from the Lord is very extraordinary, and it's very rare. And in the New Testament, it was extraordinary and rare, and it's extraordinary and rare today. Let me quote from Kevin DeYoung, a good Presbyterian, who says, When we look carefully at the instances of special revelation in the book of Acts, visions, angels, audible voices, promptings, etc., we notice one very important and consistent fact. The extraordinary means of guidance were not sought. I don't deny that God can still speak to us in direct, surprising ways. Of course, it must always be tested against Scripture. Amen. But I believe God can still give visions. The point is that these extraordinary means in the New Testament are just that. Extraordinary. God may guide us in these ways in rare instances, but we should not expect him to. We have no record in the New Testament of anyone anxious to hear God tell him what to do. Paul never sought out special words of knowledge concerning his future. He seems very concerned to know and obey God's moral will. But when he gets to a fork in the road, hesitating and pleading with God to know which way to go seems completely foreign to the apostle. Now, that's Kevin DeYoung, a good Presbyterian. Here's Donald Gee, or Gee, I actually don't know how to pronounce his name, a good charismatic, an assembly of God pastor and writer and theologian. And this is what he says. There are grave problems raised by the habit of giving and receiving personal messages of guidance through the gifts of the Spirit. The Bible gives a place for such direction from the Holy Spirit, but it must be kept in proportion. An examination of the scriptures will show us that as a matter of fact, The early Christians did not continually receive such voices from heaven. In most cases, they made their decisions by the use of what we often call sanctified common sense, and they lived quite normal lives. Many of our errors, says G, where spiritual gifts are concerned, arise when we want to make the extraordinary and exceptional to be made frequent and habitual. Let all who develop excessive desire for messages through the gifts, take warning from the wreckage of past generations as well as contemporaries. The holy scriptures are a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So sometimes, yes, God speaks supernaturally to us, but other times, more frequently, his guidance appears mundane and ordinary and even hidden from us. For instance, we see a decision Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 3. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. Well, how did Paul make that decision? Well, he says it right there. If it's suitable for him to go. In other words, if it seems like the right thing to do, if it seems like the wise thing to do. Sometimes God's guidance is supernatural and obvious, sometimes mundane and ordinary. Either way, it's always keeping with the principle of Ephesians 1.11, where Paul says, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything 
in agreement with the purpose of his will. Did you catch that? God works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. You can also catch that in Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So God is strategizing and planning and working everything out in accordance with the purpose of his will. And that means that we are not going to miss him because he's sovereignly guiding us. I submit that the vast majority of decisions made in Scripture and the ones we face now are generally more of the 1 Corinthians 16 kind, where God calls us to seek wisdom and gives us liberty to choose. Uh, let me give you an example of one of the biggest decisions um, I've ever faced pastoring a church. This was years ago, not the same church I was at now. Um, I was on staff at a church in Birmingham, Alabama. We faced a gut-wrenching decision where uh, another church wanted to merge with us. Um, we were led by elders. I was like the senior pastor or the senior elder, but we had a team of elders and we all listened to each other. And that was a fantastic group of guys that I still love dearly to this day. And we were not in agreement at all about what to do about this decision. We prayed. We talked. It was difficult. I thought we should go one way. And uh, the other three elders, um, two of whom were pretty adamant, one of whom was, let's say, halfway adamant, thought we should go the other way. And we had meetings, and we had weeping, and we had tears, and I felt outnumbered and ganged up on. But ultimately, we decided to go the direction they thought we should go. Now, let me be very clear. I don't think either one of us was advocating for something unbiblical or ungodly, but all four of us thought we were advocating for the direction God wanted us to go in. And um, years later, looking back on that decision, I don't recall any arguments or shouting or anything really inappropriate. Just it was still it was gut wrenching. Like I came away from those meetings just broken in my heart and spirit because it was so hard for us to agree on which direction to go. And that was such a rarity because we so often agreed on things. And and years later, looking back on that decision, we went the direction the other guys thought we should go, not the direction I felt led to go. And I asked the question, did we miss God as a church? And the answer is no, we did not. How did we not miss God? Well, because Ephesians 1.11, we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. I believe God led us to that decision that we made, even though I disagreed with it. And further, I actually believe it was the right call. I think those guys were right, and I probably wasn't right. I wasn't trying to be wrong, but man, I thought I was right. But I think those guys were right. And I praise God that God led us to the right decision. Um, we were all trying to go the right direction. Um, ultimately, we didn't go based on our feelings, but ultimately, God just brought us into agreement and we made it forward from that point. The key thing to remember there is God is sovereignly guiding us. He's orchestrating our decisions. If our hearts are bent on seeking him, if we are following his words and walking in a way that pleases him, I believe he is going to make our decisions, as Romans 8.28 says, work out for the good of those who know him and are called according to his purpose. 
And friends, when you have a big decision, if you're facing one now, you can rest in that assurance that God's word is true and he will work the results of this decision out for your good and his glory. So to review what we talked about yesterday and the day before, five-step process from, from the Bible for making decisions. Number one, where God commands, we must obey. Number two, where there's no command, we follow the example of Jesus and devote significant time to praying, trusting that God will divinely lead us and guide our decision, whether he whispers in our ear the exact thing to do or not. Number three, where there is no command, God gives us the freedom to choose and sovereignty, sovereignly orchestrates our choices for our ultimate good, his glory, and to accomplish his will. Number four, when there is no command, God calls us to seek wise counsel from friends and wise people, and he calls us to walk in wisdom and make a wise decision. Five, when we've chosen what is biblical and wise, we must trust the sovereign God to work all the details together for good. Let me give you one more little tidbit. Five questions to ask about big decisions that are not clearly addressed in the Bible. And look, let me be very clear. You don't have to, I don't think you have to do this for every small decision you're faced with. Where you should eat, what should you watch this evening on TV as long as it's God honoring, that sort of thing. But for big decisions you you face, maybe these five questions will help you. Question number one, how does this decision affect the chief priorities of my life? Well, what are your chief priorities? Well, the great commandment, the second great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, the great commission, and the great kingdom that we are to seek first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Those are the priorities of my life. I believe those should be the priorities of your life. How does this decision affect your ability to pursue those priorities? Number two, how does this decision affect the most important relationships in your life? If you're married and you're trying to make a big decision on your own, uh, don't do that. That's dumb. That's foolish. Don't talk to your spouse. You know, make these decisions in unison. Um, number three, what are the risks involved and are they worth it? Some risks are worth taking. Um, some aren't. Number four, what do my wise friends and counselors say about this decision? And finally, number five, am I certain the word of God does not specifically direct me on this matter? Because the fact of the matter is sometimes we, all the time, we can't keep the whole Bible in our head and know what it says. In some decisions I've found that I've wrestled with for a little bit, I've actually gone back to the word and said, well, maybe the word does say something about this. And it turns out, lo and behold, it did. So it's good to double check and make sure that the word of God hasn't already told you the exact direction to go in. Well, I hope that whole three-week series is helpful for us to think through making wise decisions. If you want to look at the notes and especially the scriptures that uh, we talked about today and yesterday day and the day before, you can just go to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Lo and behold, there they'll be. Let's read some scripture. Joshua chapter 23, verse 1. A long time after the Lord had given Israel rest from all the enemies around them, Joshua was old, advanced in age. So Joshua summoned all Israel, including its elders, leaders, judges, and officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age, and you have seen for yourselves everything the Lord your God did to all these nations on your account, because it was the Lord your God who was fighting for you. See, I have allotted these remaining nations to you as an inheritance for your tribes, including all the nations I have destroyed from the Jordan westward to the Mediterranean Sea. The Lord your God will force them back on your account 
and drive them out before you so that you can take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong and continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you do not turn from it to the right or left and so that you do not associate with these nations remaining among you. Do not call on the names of their gods or make an oath to them. Do not serve them or bow in worship to them. Instead, be loyal to the Lord your God as you have been to this day. The Lord has driven out great and powerful nations before you, and no one is able to stand against you to this day. One of you routed a thousand because the Lord your God was fighting for you, as he promised. So diligently watch yourselves. Love the Lord your God. If you ever turn away and become loyal to the rest of these nations remaining among you, and if you intermarry or associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out before you. They will become a snare and a trap for you, a sharp stick for your sides and thorns in your eyes until you disappear from this good land the Lord your God has given you. I am now going the way of the whole earth, and you know with all your heart and with all your soul that none of the good promises the Lord your God made to you has failed. Everything was fulfilled for you. Not one promise has failed. Since every good thing the Lord your God promised you has come about, so he will bring on you every bad thing until he has annihilated you from this good land the Lord your God has given you. If you break the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow in worship to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly disappear from this good land he has given you. Acts chapter 3 verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter along with John looked straight at him and said, Look at us. So he turned to them expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran towards them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he has decided had decided to release him. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you, as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things which God spoke about through the holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, You must listen to everything he tells you, and everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. 
In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 1, You will be righteous, Lord, even if I bring a case against you, yet I wish to contend with you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous live at ease? You planted them and they have taken root. They have grown and produced fruit. You are ever on their lips, but far from their conscience. As for you, Lord, you know me. You see me. You test whether my heart is with you. Drag the wicked away like sheep to slaughter and set them apart for the day of killing. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither because of the evil of its residents? Animals and birds have been swept away. For the people have said he cannot see what our end will be. If you raced with runners and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in a peaceful land, what will you do in the thickets of the Jordan? Even your brothers, your own father's family, even they were treacherous to you. Even they have cried out loudly after you. Do not have confidence in them, though they speak well of you. I have abandoned my house. I have deserted my inheritance. I have handed the love of my life over to her enemies. My inheritance has behaved towards me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me, therefore I hate her. Is my inheritance like a hyena to me? Are birds of prey circling her? Go, gather all the wild animals, bring them to devour her. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled my plot of land. They have turned my desirable plot into a desolate wasteland. They have made it a desolation. It mourns desolate before me. All the land is desolate, but no one takes it to heart. Over all the barren heights in the wilderness, the destroyers have come, for the Lord has a sword that devours from one end of the earth to the other. No one has peace. They have sown wheat, but harvested thorns. They have exhausted themselves, but have no profit. Be put to shame by your harvests because of the Lord's burning anger. This is what the Lord says concerning all my evil neighbors who attack the inheritance that I bequeath to my people, Israel. I am about to uproot them from their land, and I will uproot the house of Judah from them. After I have uprooted them, I will once again have compassion on them and return each one to his inheritance and to his land. If they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, just as they taught my people to swear by Baal, they will be built up among my people. However, if they will not obey, then I will uproot and destroy that nation. This is the Lord's declaration. Matthew chapter 26 verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest who was named Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then 
one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out thirty pieces of silver for him, and from that time he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Go into the city to a certain man, he said, and tell him. The teacher says, My time is near. I am celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he replied, The one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas, his betrayer, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, he told him. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, Tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he asked Peter, So couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See? The time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, Why have you come? Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, Put your sword back in its place, because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my Father, and he will provide me here and now with more than twelve legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, 
Have you come out with swords and clubs if, as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me, but all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. Peter was following him at a distance, right to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and was sitting with the servants to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, the two who came forward stated, This man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who was it that hit you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. The servant girl approached him and said, You were with him, Jesus the Galilean, too. But he denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, This man was with Jesus the Nazarene. And again he denied it with an oath, I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, You really are one of them, since even your accent gives you away. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And that, my friends, was the longest chapter in the New Testament, I believe, and one of the heaviest. Thank you, Jesus, for what you suffered for us. May your name be praised. Godspeed, friends.